Hello and welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lisette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. Welcome to another episode of Black, Brown, and Bilingue. We are so excited to have Sammy Rangel here. He is an author, social worker, peace activist, speaker, trainer, and father. Uh, his autobiography, Forebears, The Myths of Forgiveness, chronicles his life from the physical and sexual abuse he endured as a child to his path of self-destruction that culminated in a 15 and a half year prison sentence. In 2012, Sammy founded Formers Anonymous, a national self-help group based on the 12-step model for people addicted to street life and violence. In May 2015, he participated in the TEDx Danubia Conference, Balance on the Edge, held in Budapest, where he spoke about the power of forgiveness. In 2017, he was honored in a special tribute to everyday heroes in the global campaign against violent extremism. Sammy holds a Master of Social Work from Loyola University in Chicago. He previously served as a program director for a youth outreach program in his hometown of Racine for 16 years. He is also a secondary black belt, practices mixed martial arts, and is a singer on a Native American drum. And he is currently the CEO of Life After Hate, which is dedicated to helping people in the violent far-right extremist movements disengage from these groups. I mean, wow. What an honor to have you here. I'm, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. Sammy, we, we, we've invited you on because we just want to learn a little bit from you. Why don't we start with this? Could you just tell us a little bit about your life experiences and, and then your educational journey that have led you to where you are today? It's unfortunate, but I think my story um, is very common, but... I probably took it to an extreme, even amongst other extremists, right? Like just, um, I, I started out with a really just, just a crappy start for my parents. You know, my parents were um, uh, abusive, but abusive sounds so typical and everyday, right? It, it, it goes beyond that. You know, there's a lot of like, realistically like torture, like near-death experiences through those beatings, you know, starvation, sleep deprivation, um, like deep, deep humiliation. And that's even before, like, I get to two years old, you know, like that's, that's the very beginning. And what I have found out since I've, uh, since I've told my story and written my book and did my TED Talk is there, were, I thought I was the only one in my family pool that suffered the way I did, but it turns out quite a few of my cousins did as well, by some of the same perpetrators that were sexually assaulting me. It's, it's insidious, like it's just, it's, just, it's as horrible as it can get, man. And you know, if it was a movie, it'd be one of those movies where people are just left wondering, how the hell did anybody get out of that? Much less, you know, convert from hatred to this. Like, I mean, 
it, it was horrendous. And I took matters into my own hands around 11, you know, because I, I didn't run away from home as much as I escaped, you know, it was more of an escape mm-hmm. from home. And I wasn't running from parents, I was running from monsters, you know, people who were trying to kill me. And I, and I know today that that is the truth because I found out a little bit later that my mom, while my mom was five months pregnant with me, she had tried to kill my older brother, who I didn't find out about until I was like 45 years old. Wow. She, she, wow. she, she tried to, she fractured his skull. He, the, uh, the report said he was a massive bruises. Um, he was in and out of consciousness and he was only like 18 months old at the time. You know, like she literally tried to kill him and the state took him and he just disappeared from our family history until I stumbled upon the fact that he was out there. Mm. Um, so now I know like that sense, you know, you sense like my parents weren't just beating me. They were trying to kill me. I, I know now I have confirmation from relatives that she picked up with me where she left off with them. But the flaw in the system back then, and, it, and that flaw still exists somewhat today, was I was considered an uninvolved youth in that situation because she didn't beat me. Um, as well as my sister. My older sister was left in the same home right after she tried to do that to my brother. Um, and I'm not sure that my mom ever had any accountability for that. I know that like most abusers, we ended up moving clear across the country where no one knew our names, right. no one knew who was who we were, isolated, and the beatings continued, right? And so by the time I was 11, I, I wasn't, I couldn't even say that enough was enough because I didn't have that mentality. I just knew I was running for my life. I was afraid for my life. I felt my life ending, like it's literally something I could feel slipping through my fingers. And I contemplated killing my parents, but not out of hatred or anger, but like me versus me, or them like somebody's got to survive right and there was no malice it was just like this is probably the only way i can get away from this situation and but eventually i couldn't i couldn't overcome the fear but more importantly i couldn't overcome the love that i had for my family even though right even though and um so i left i left home i had never been allowed outside i had never been allowed to sleep over i i never rode a bike i i didn't have the usual experiences that children have so when I ran away, I ran away from that into a world that was completely foreign to me. Um, I didn't know anything about the neighborhoods. I didn't know anything about life, you know. And granted, I went to school, but it was a very isolated experience there, too. You know, I was invisible at school. I was on a timer, literally, to and from school by my parents. So there was, like, no deviation from the route, you know. And I, I'm sure it was obvious that I was being beaten, that I was being neglected. I was always covered in bruises and lacerations and swollen body parts, like, there's no way people could not have seen what was going on, but no one said nothing, right? And so I, I left home and in a very short period of time, I was blessed to run into my friends um, because I had no allies. And these kids happened to be streetwise, you know, they were about my age. Um, they, would, they were from what would eventually become my neighborhood. Um, they were a little different though because the neighborhood I was in was Latino but they were whites, but now I understand why they were tolerated was because their mom's boyfriend was a drug dealer from, uh, from Colombia. So he was like the cocaine contact uh, at that time. So that's kind of why that family was allowed to live in that environment because they were suppliers. Um, mm. And so day one, I committed a crime, didn't know I was committing a crime though. My friends helped me 
uh, gather materials from some abandoned buildings and we put it into a garage. They made me a clubhouse. They were the first people who actually took time to hear my story, listen to me, and then rally around me to like help me, you know? And so I, they became lifelong friends, you know, at that time. And um, by day three, I had broken an arm trying to run away from like some sort of fight or danger. I can't remember. I think I was breaking into a house and someone came home and I jumped out of a window and landed on my arm. I think that's what happened. And then I started fighting right away, but I was forced to fight. Like I didn't, I wasn't a fighter by, by nature. I was, a, I was a meek child. I was like, I was a runt, like a skinny, malnourished. I wasn't even a big mouth yet. I was just a kid, man. Like I, I was probably as naive as they come when it comes to 11 year olds at that time. Like I had no worldly experience, you know, and, uh, but these guys saw that and they were trying to help me survive. And so they started like immersing me in experiences that they thought were going to help me, <laughs> you know, quickly I started getting in trouble with the law, uh, primarily because I was not going to school. So I dropped out in the fifth grade. Um, I stopped going to school because I learned pretty quickly that that's a place to get picked up and returned home. And then my arrests started happening. So I started spending like a day, you know, a couple of hours in detention and then an overnight and then the weekends and then a week and then a month and then nine months and then shipped out of state, shipped to mental institutions. People trying to, I felt like when I look back on it, I felt like I was being sold. Like I was just sold off into these systems of, and I had no say in that, man. I was shipped out of state to an, like an, a literally like a white supremacist camp, you know, where I was the only minority that had probably ever been in that environment. Got beat up and my arm broke the same day I got there. Like it was pretty bad. Right. And, but I didn't realize, you know, how wrong it was just because it was just my life. You know, it was just my life. And by the time I was 17, I was committing crimes. I would say I was being violent, but I wouldn't say I was violent yet. Like I really wasn't, I wasn't mindful. I, I was just reckless. You know, it was no direction, no leadership in my life. Um, I was somewhat angry, you know, about things, you know, but I was mostly homeless and hungry up until that point, you know, and I, I had friends, but nobody could take me in forever. People did what they could, you know. But by the time I was 17, that's when things took a turn for the worst. I was shipped to a maximum security prison. And while I was in that prison, I was supposed to spend about eight months in prison because the way this Illinois system sentences you, you do like half your time, plus good time, plus earned credit for going to school and stuff. So it, it was calculated. I should have did about eight months. So I should have got out when I was 18. Instead, I got out four and a half years later. And most of that four and a half years I spent in segregation because I was always fighting. But then when the race riot, there was a race riot that occurred when I was 17, just a couple of months before I was supposed to go home. And it was whites against blacks. And of course the Latinos supported the blacks. Um, we were in the, the only prison in Illinois called Menard Correctional that was the stronghold for white supremacists at the time. And just to be fair and transparent, all the other prisons were governed and controlled by black and Latino gangs. So, but there was a place for white supremacists in those. Like we, we had like what's called universal policies, which is inmate led, inmate controlled, a space, a safe space for every gang affiliation, provided you follow these universal laws that we all participate by. And that was, to be honest, it was a, it was a good system because it meant that you weren't coming into prison and just being exploited and taken advantage of by anybody. You know, like you had protections by the inmates. So, but this prison was different because it was it was in the south. It was in southern Illinois, which is pretty racist. You know, it's 
It's a, it's a racist part of the state, openly racist, Confederate flag flying kind of racist. Um, the guards were racist. Most of the administration was racist. And I mean, openly, this isn't, you know, there may be some deniability, but in this state, in this part of the state, there was no need to deny it. They were just very open about it. And so this race riot kicked off and I had grown up around violence, obviously, but this was a turn. This was a different type of violence. Um, I guess I had been around racism, but not like, like domestic terrorist type racism. You know, I know my family suffered from attacks. Like I remember some of those things growing up, you know, my family was from Texas. So, but this was, this kind of violence was based on the color of your skin. It was, you were a target because of your race, not your neighborhood, not what color you wore, you know, not what, you know, not none of that. It was really based on if you were white or if you were black. And we were outnumbered. The whites were the largest part of the prison population. And I think the Latinos had a, had a, we were the smallest minority group in the prison, but I think we had a, a reputation for being like, fighters like we were fighters we might only be a few of us but we're going to hold ours down and so we were told to take up arms with with the black guys and so we did and so whatever your gang affiliation was that went out the window it, and it became truly about part partnerships around race and so we were partnering with people who were enemies we we're partnering with people who we had never known but we were you know brought together because of the color of our skin man and um, there were like 10 of us in the cell hall and we were basically told when the shooting starts outside, you guys attack the whites on the inside. And so 10 of us facing off with about 30 white supremacists in inside our unit alone. There was fighting everywhere. In the prison. It was like the whole prison took off. Right. And then um, the fighting started, the shooting started, we were inside and you know, the guards can come in and out of the building on a catwalk that's like up like on the third or fourth floor and they can move in and in and out of the building on this catwalk. And so while they were shooting outside, we started fighting, but then they came back inside and started shooting in the cell hall. And mind you, they're shooting high powered rifles and shotguns and we're in cement and steel enclosed buildings. So those bullets are going everywhere. So when they came in to shoot, everyone kind of scattered for cover. And I ran the wrong way. I actually ran back to the corner that we started in. So now my escape is on the other side of this building, but between me and my escape is this group of white supremacists. And so the guard was just kind of holding everyone in their position like that, but he had to go back outside to cover his ground out there. So as soon as he did that, those white guys came after me. And um, I, I just assumed I was gonna die right then and there, but I was gonna die fighting. And in the middle of that fight, I did get stabbed. But in the middle of that fight, a black guy named New York, he was a friend of mine, but I would say more of an acquaintance. We weren't really friends, but, you know, we just knew each other in the cell hall. We weren't buddies. We never confided in each other. But he saw my dilemma and he jumped in to help me. And I was armed. I had knives taped to my hand. So I was fully armed. It was brazen, you know, right in the open, just like the white guys were. They all had weapons, too. He didn't have any weapons. And when he jumped in, he was fighting with his hands. And that guard came back in and he shot New York. 
He didn't shoot me who's standing right next to him with two knives in my hand. He didn't shoot the 30 guys who are attacking us with spears and knives and, and metal stools and mop ringers. And he didn't attack none. He shot the only black guy in the crowd who was unarmed. And then everyone dispersed again. I know I took some of that, like, uh, like the buckshot in my back. I know my back was on fire because I had got hit pretty like grazed or ricochet, whatever it was, my back, they were pulling BBs out of my back for a while. The guard was threatening to kill me if I were to touch New York. I'm assuming he was, I don't know, whatever he was, I don't know what he was doing, but he told me, but I didn't care at this point. I was, I was in shock, I'm assuming, and numb, and facing death was already a part of the, the equation for me. So I knew if I left New York there, that those white guys were going to take him in the cell and kill him. So um, I grabbed him. And I dragged them 150 cells, which is probably the length of at least two football fields from one side to the other in that cell hall. And the whole time he's screaming, he's bleeding. He's begging me to tell his mom that he loves him, that he loves her. And as I get to the end of the cell hall, I see uh, like a, one of the leadership of the prison, like a superintendent come in and he's got a whole bunch of security with him. And I start begging him to take New York to the hospital. Like, He's going to die. He's going to die. And the cop was like, nobody's coming in and going out, which means they're basically going to let him die. And I begged him again. And at that point, you know, he just made it clear, no, it's not going to happen. And I was going to try to, I was going to, I started a fight with that guy. I basically hit him. I tried to stab him, but then I was so bloody. I couldn't hang on to the knives I had. And so I ended up punching him. I ended up breaking his jaw actually. Um, and that started off a whole nother set of fighting. Now the inmates came out to help me fight the cops. We took over the cell hall. We forced our way to the hospital. New York died. I ended up spending the next two and a half years in segregation in what was called admin seg. Now, while that, sound, and the, while that sounds like the worst part of it, I think what happened in those two and a half years actually compounded my situation exponentially because now I'm surrounded by older men. Remember, I'm 17. You're okay. And I'm, sur I'm surrounded by other men who were self-proclaiming to be revolutionists, but who were also like gang members, right? Other black males. There were really no older Hispanic males there. And I spent the next two and a half years being radicalized. I only know that language today. I didn't know that language then or even when I wrote my book. But I ended up becoming anti-government, anti-law enforcement, anti-white. And I, I, even though I was a gang member, I still called myself a revolutionist as well. And because of my activity in the hole and um, in the riot, I rose through the ranks pretty quickly. I walked out of prison a, a gang leader. Uh, of one of the most violent criminal gangs in Chicago on the north side. And so between that power that I got in the gang and that new form, found knowledge, what I thought was knowledge and wisdom and insight, right? Like I had been, like I was enlightened, I have a rage. So what, I, what was anger before was now rage. What was anger before was now hate. And I had a very specific target in mind and I had a very specific mission in mind. And um, even my friends who I would say were probably what I would have called killers, assassins, you know, hitmen, whatever, were complaining that I was too extreme, that I was pushing the envelope too far.
And I basically was like not trying to hear that, you know. Pretty soon I went to, uh, I was given new charges for beating up that, that guard and for my participation in the riot, which is why I ended up staying longer than my original sentence. And then seven months later, I believe I was on my way back to prison for probably what should have been charged as hate crimes, but nobody was really talking about hate crimes in the early 90s because all my targets were white. They were intended targets. I, was, I, I got away with an assault on a, on a female detective earlier that night. I thought they were going to question me about that. They never did. So I was carrying out both sides of that lifestyle, both as a gang member and as now a revolutionist, or at least that's what I was putting that under. <clears throat> I went to prison, beat up four more guards, turned a two-year sentence into seven years, spent five of those years in the hole, transferred 17 times. And even though I've been out of prison about 20, couple, 21, 22 years now, I'm still listed as one of the most dangerous inmates in Wisconsin, although I have free access to the prisons now. I made quite a name for myself as the lead asshole, if I can say that on your podcast. You know? <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, obviously just reading the bio, you realize that's not the end of my story. And I'm on a different path now. Wow. I mean, there are so many things that just stand out to me as I'm hearing your story. Um, but early on how you had that realization that your story unfortunately is not as unique as as you maybe thought at some point and what really kills me because Maurice and I are both educators is that no one in the school system ever tried to intervene or or is looking back is there anything that you wish even a teacher could have done could you speak a little bit on like what your schooling experience, because you said you dropped out in fifth grade, correct? So is there anything that we could have done like that? That just kills me because we know that trauma is very pervasive with our students. Well, I want to also point out, I think a very important fact is that what happened to me by the school is still happening today. If, have you watched that Netflix series of that little yeah. Mexican kid? Yeah. That is my freaking story. My my children sat there and were like, Dad, that that could be, that could have been you. And that's the whole thing. When I was watching that, I was like, I'm I'm only blessed that I wasn't killed by my parents. But just like all of those teachers saw everything, and it is still happening today. Mm -hmm. It is not over. This isn't something that happened in the 70s. This is something that still happens today, right? So I think that's important. Most educators, from my experience, because I spent a lot of time training educators and, and affecting admin level type of influences around the school districts, around the country, most of the problem is that educators don't buy into, they don't adhere, and they're afraid of mandated reporting. They think that mandated reporting is only going to make it worse. And they don't understand that actually the worst thing that could happen for this kid is for nothing to change for that child. That nothing, that moment of nothing, I can say was the precipitant for the beginning of my radicalization. Because as soon as I start to feel that you don't care about me, why do I care about you? And that sentiment only goes further and further with every confirmation that people don't care about you. My parents started out hurting me. 
but the school district was complicit. The social workers were complicit. The principals were complicit. Law enforcement was complicit. The psychologists that ended up giving me a diagnosis, not my parents, but me a diagnosis, were complicit. The service providers, once I was in their care who heard of the abuse, were complicit. My parents were never questioned, never even questioned for the abuse that they rained on. And I'm talking about all the way to broken bones. I probably weighed 70 pounds at 11 years old. At 11 years old. My daughter's 11 and weighs 100 pounds right now. And she's skinny. You know, it's, wow. it's complete. So that, that is, and I, I think your general listener could, could fill in the blank of what we wish would have happened. Sure. The problem is that educators, and, and I'm, I would like to create a law. I would like to lead a law that says that educators or some, maybe not a law, but some sort of administrative rule within school districts, that educators are taught social work aspects. Because to be honest, I know that you're over, I know that you're overstaffed and underfunded, I'm not overstaffed, understaffed and, and underfunded and you're overworked, your caseloads are big, your classrooms are too big, you don't have the big, I understand that. I mean, get on board with everybody else, right? We're all in that same situation. Right? However, most teachers don't have the social work skills that they're required to act as when they're in the classroom, right? But those social work skills can help them understand. You guys are the front line. You're, you are going, you spend as much, if not more time with my child than I do. You have eyes on that child. You are, to them, you may be the only one who can say anything. It's a massive failure by school districts. And, and I know educators don't, they don't mean any harm, but they are part of the harm that gets done when they refuse to take action on behalf of the child. When you ignore the signs. When, and then look at what you do to the kids in the classroom. You teach them to ignore it too. Mm. And then a child like me who had a bright future ahead of a man is just left alone at a very, I tried to kill myself for the first time at eight at eight years old, you know, like you're truly alone in this world. You're in the middle of a group of people who just don't see you, who don't acknowledge you. You know, you guys can make the difference and you have to insist that your other educators are trained. People have to overcome their biases and their stereotypes around mandated reporting. There is no research that supports that mandated reporting increases the likelihood of more severe abuse. It, the research shows that with supervision, abuse starts to go away. That family needs help. I work with a lot of perpetrators of child abuse. Help is possible. People can change. And if not, there's a system in place to remove those children and hopefully place them in a more safe environment. But I also know that the horror stories of those placements can be real too. But we need to do better. It's a daunting issue, but we need to it do is. better. So, Sammy, you... you You've used the, the phrase um, that you were radicalized. Um, and I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit more. Today, you are working with an organization called Life After Hate. You know, how did hate play a role in your life um, and in and, and, and part of that radicalization? Hate was the end result. I can tell you, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the starting point for me. It took me a long time. Mm -hmm. I endured a lot before I became hateful. I think hateful, the hate came in after the race riot. Look at everything I had to go through before I finally became hateful. Mm 
know, I was resilient as a child, man. I, I wanted to play and ride bikes, you know? Like, that's what I wanted to do my whole life. And I, I was denied that ability, that right, that freedom, that privilege, whatever it is. You know, I just wanted to eat a good meal. Most of the time, I couldn't. Hate is hurt left unattended to by the world. I don't really think there's any... You can't expect a child to know what to do with those kind of wounds other than what they do, especially with no mentors, with no leadership, with no big brother or big sister figures to, to guide you. And to be honest, I was being guided by kids who were in the same situation I was, man. We were just orphaned by the, this, uh, this abdication for parents to be involved, right? We were just parents around us but orphaned you know like we're raising ourselves man we're right we're, we're playing sex games to try to figure out sex virus like there's no one talking to us about the bird we're figuring it all out or crime or you know drug abuse like we're just there to figure it out so you got the 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 youth leading the youth with no leadership right and it's it's inevitable if you ask me it's what do we know what do we really know about life the hate was really me getting to a point where I realized if the world wasn't going to listen to me, I was going to make them listen. If the world wasn't going to do anything about my problems, then somebody had to pay for that. Right? So I had grievances. I had valid grievances. I had witnessed unadulterated racism. I had institutional racism. What most people think they see but don't experience like I, I, I went through that. Like what happened with George Floyd? I grew up with that. Like I grew up with that in my life. I've seen that so many times. I've been tortured in prison. I've been tortured by cops. I've been left and left for dead by cops. Like I've, I've gone through that. And so many people have, but a lot of people it's, it's weird because, you know, especially with these people who think like these counter protesters are lost and, and misguided. Well, it's probably because you're coming from a place of privilege, you know, and until you, until you actually experience this, not once, not twice, but as a normal part of life, you really can't understand how oppressive that is. And, and now, like these, some of these protesters, some of these counter protesters are, violence was the only language I felt I had left to be heard. It was the only way I could make people leave, uh, listen. Right? At least that's how I felt. That's what I believed. I believed that. Because here's what I would do. I was, in that lifestyle, my MO was this. I was laid back. I was chill until I wasn't. And I can promise you, until that moment, I had given you every overt, covert warning that this shit was about to get ugly. I tried to tell you, hey, hey, you need to listen to me. I'm trying to tell you. Let's talk about this before it gets out of hand. I would have those conversations so many times. And then eventually it just got to the point where I was like, I see the only thing you're going to listen to is violence. And, and that is really how I lived my life. It was like, if I couldn't get it out of you by trying to be reasonable, there was no, there was nothing in the middle. It was on and off. You know, if, if I couldn't convince you with words over a period of time, and it took me a long time to get to a point of being fed up with you in most cases. Um, but that, I'm not saying I was being reasonable. I'm not telling you, I'm not speaking like I was reasonable. It, it was like, I knew in my head, 
I'm going to have to put my hands on you. I'm going to have to do, you know, that's where I was coming. I was not being reasonable. And the things I were asking for weren't always fair, to be honest. But that came after a certain point, you know. As a child, I just wanted to be protected and I wanted to be free. I wanted to be with my family, but I didn't want to be abused by my family, you know. And so I couldn't go home because they weren't going to change. Um, I was, they tried to put me in nice foster homes, but what did I know about that? You know, and so I left, I ran away from those foster homes. Like I, I would rather be on the streets where I'm at least in control of some of my life. That hatred, man, was nothing more than, than hurt, mm-hmm. expounded by years and years of abandonment. And that's what leads to radicalization, right? Be- you become radicalized be- when your grievances are just left unaddressed year after year after year. We all understand this concept because why? All parents hurt their children, right? And all children hurt their parents. And when those, depending on what family system you come from, your parents might dismiss all your hurts. And then pretty soon you hate your parents, don't you? Pretty soon you don't want to have nothing to do with them, right? That is a form of radicalization because you become extreme in your reaction to people's reactions to you. But Unfortunately, the path that radicalization takes you down, it, it consumes more and more of you. And so you need to do more to kind of satisfy that radicalization. That's why, that's why my violence kept, it, it, it kept going up. It, was never, it wasn't enough to get even. It wasn't enough to set the record straight. Now I needed to overwhelm you the way I was feeling overwhelmed. My violence was the only way I felt I could communicate after a certain amount of years of being tortured and abandoned and neglected and unheard. Mm. And I can't tell you how many near death experiences I had before I became violent, you know? And finally I was just like, if I'm gonna live, and and I'm not using any of my experience as an excuse. I want you to know that, like, I'm telling you what my mind was like then. Mm. And obviously I've come out of that with a different mindset, but. I'm not alone when I talk about how I felt and how I thought then. There are so many others. And even with the white supremacists, the guys who are being really violent, these domestic terrorists, these, these homegrown domestic terrorists, right? They have grievances. And when you take time to listen to them, guess what? There's some truth in that. For example, if you're a white person and somebody tells you you're innately racist, if somebody tells you that you know, you have white privilege and as such, you need to get a, you know, you need to be a part of the solution. I'm not, I'm not debating whether or not those are valid points that we're trying to make, but the way we have that discussion, that is shaming someone. That is collective shaming. That is, you're, it's no different when you hear that all Mexicans are rapists, murderers, and drug dealers from the top administrator. That's collective shaming as well as trying to lump all white folks as innately racist who have white privilege and who, they don't understand where you're coming from because you know why most of those people don't connect to slavery directly because we're that many generations out and also like what does that got to do with me right most people have been blinded by their privilege and are unaware that it's privilege and so what does that have to do with me and so you're either driving people away from the table or you're bringing them to the table for the wrong reasons under the wrong banner so we have to even have better discussions around how we want to address the issue so that we're not driving people to one extreme or the other, right? So in many ways, these white supremacists are a lot like me in the sense that they just feel like they're not being hurt and they're gonna take matters into their own hands. Because if not, the end result is my demise. Mm -hmm. Now, some of that is based on conspiracy that is totally unfounded. 
And part of that is just based on the systemic racism in which most people have experienced in the U.S. That's really powerful because I think we live in a time where we've become so polarized and intolerant to even engage with other people um, in a conversation. And, and, you know, that collective shaming, it, it is very pervasive. Um, you also talked about, you know, coming out of that hate. What do you think, or can you talk about your journey into like forgiveness? How was that? What helped you like turn your life around? Well, I want to talk about the principle before the details, right? The, the, everything I've been saying is that as a child, as a young adolescent, as a teenager, as a young adult, pre, pre-20s, and then into my 20s, the one thing I should have gotten that I never got that I think pushed all this to the tipping point, I was never validated. Nothing about my life, existence, or experiences had ever been validated. And, and if anything, it had been duplicated over and over and over. That is, that is what is the main principle I think is behind, like the secret sauce behind successful interventions. We have to validate people. How do we validate people? Well, to your point, when you are led down a path of polarization, you're also led not to listen, right? And the only true source of validation, the only true source of, of expressing a genuine empathy and or compassion is by listening. Why don't we listen? We don't listen because we feel we've confused listening with concession. We think that if we spend time listening to a point we don't agree with, that somehow we're implying or giving away this, this idea that I agree with you. And so therefore, not to confuse my listening with agree, I'm just not going to even participate, right? Listening, though, has multiple, I mean, of course, just like a lot of positive things that we put into the world, right? As they say, when you, when you neglect one moment, you really neglect the next 10 moments. But when you, when you really you know, pay attention to this moment, you take care of the next 10,000 moments, right? And so this idea of listening has so many side effects that are positive. One, the person you're listening to gets the sense of being nurtured and cared for, which is very... Um, it just says like I'm using this as a psychology term, like a Freudian term. It's very mothering in nature, right? It's very nurturing, right? And so that that nurturing is what makes the rapport work. It's what it's something that it just evokes so in so much of your instinctual need for connectedness that when I'm being listened to, I feel like I've just gotten the world's best hug. I've just gotten I've gotten soothed. I've gotten food. I've gotten nourishment, right? Because you're not anticipating that. You're not anticipating being listened to. You, when you've also been demonstrated and told that you're not worthy, listening counteracts all of that. Listening says you are worthy, right? Listening says, I see you and, I, and I'm hearing you, but more than that, I'm understanding you, right? Like, and I want to be understood. I don't want to be given a free pass. I don't want you to co-sign. I just want to be understood. Like, can you see my wounds can you see how i got here can you see the basis of my anger and my rage and when you can do that right and so you have to have the the i think thick enough soul skin to stand next to that kind of heat right like because that's it gets very hot in those environments so to speak 
but that listening is, is powerful. And so one of my principles that I bring to my organization is that we don't concede, but in the same breath of that conversation, we don't condemn. If you can hold space, talking with your adversary, with your antagonist, with, with whoever it is, right? If you don't feel the need to concede and you don't feel the need to condemn, I bet you the spirit of that conversation is going to flourish. It's going to go in a good direction. But you have to have the ability. And there's some skills in there, but you also have to have that willingness to go down that path with somebody, right? Maurice, you trying to get in? I see you. I, well, I, I just wanted to stop you, Sammy, because you may have just changed my life with that one that, that, <laughs> that you don't have to c- concede, man, in order to, in order to listen, right? And, and I think we are definitely at that place. I mean, I'm literally was, was in the middle of a Facebook conversation today, and I got to a place where I realized these people are not interested in listening to me. And I think they don't want to listen because they feel like they'd have to agree. And if they agree, then they have to begin to challenge some of their own thinking. They have to and, and, and the first step is just listen. But instead, they'd ra- more readily condemn what I'm saying rather than feeling like maybe they're going to make a concession. And so that, that there's a middle ground that you can listen without concession or without condemning. Is, is incredibly powerful. And it cuts through hate like butter. Because yeah. that's what happened to me. And like there are other, my other co-founders with Life After Hate, they're all ex-white supremacists, right? So I'm on the other end of that, right? I was fighting white supremacists, right? And each of us, just amongst ourselves, I'm not even talking about the hundreds that we've helped that all hold true as well. Each of us have a story where someone listened to us when we were at our lowest in life, when we were most undeserving, when we were completely condemnable, somebody listened. And it's always like an unknown. The X factor is that it's an unknown. It's somebody who you have a stereotype about who breaks the freaking mold. And when they break the mold for them and that group that they belong to, you start to wonder and question. It's like a domino effect, right? Like, what else is not right about what I perceived about the world? My global narrative is challenged and then changed. So now I have, you've created doubt in my firm stance. See, because I, I grew up in the gang life being told that a, a strong belief can withstand, can withstand questioning, right? And so when you do not allow your, your beliefs to be wavered, but some of these actions that are, are happening through listening sessions are changing your beliefs. They're, they're like making you question what you believe about the world. So it's unusual, but here's what, here's what I'm saying. You have to be different than everyone else. And that difference in a world today, based on like what Lizette was saying about, you know, how we're all polarized, what will make you unique today, unfortunately, is that you are a good listener, right? Because no one else is listening. Now, we're the only organization in America right now who is sitting down listening to white supremacists. We're not even sharing ideas. We're not even comparing ideas or lifestyles or perspectives or viewpoints. We spend so much time listening to some of the most horrendous stuff you would hear, to to some of the craziest ideas. And we also are not communicating shock, which is, by the way, a form of judgment. 
we're not, we're not communicating approval, which is a form of judgment. We are just listening. We're present. And in that action, people want to then hear what you think without, without asking for an invitation to talk. They, now that you've listened, they almost just naturally get to the point where they conclude, you just listen to me. I'd be curious to hear what you have to say. That listening opened up their minds to hear. Now, even if I had the gold standard of advice, if I hadn't created an environment where it opens their mind to be willing to peek into my mind, that gold standard will never get communicated effectively to that person. I will never speak their language. But because I listened, they almost inherently always want to know what you're thinking. And that is the place where one, you have to tread carefully, consider the gift, a gem, as I would say. And two, you know, make sure that the first things that come out are validation, that you understand, that you see, and maybe try to show some advanced insight or what we would call like advanced reflections, you know, advanced reflections showing that you understand more than what they said. Here's what they said, but here's what I think you meant. Is that right? And then they when you do that, they almost feel like, holy shit, somebody understands me. And how did you do that? <laughs> you know, like they want to know more about that, right? Um, and that's what happened to me, man, in the very beginning. It's somebody finally, I was almost 30 years old before I had actually been listened to. And I'll tell you, there was no turning back after that. I never went back, I never turned back, and I've been scrambling to figure out life and myself ever since. Yeah, I, I feel like this interview is also just changing my life because I I think, you know, we all have those traits about ourselves that we may not like. And I think my most unfavorable trait traits surface when I'm feeling misunderstood. And you have given me that um, connection. Like I just literally made a, a self-connection on how I'm married to a social worker <laughs> and so um, he will do a lot of listening and initially it would drive me crazy but but it's a real skill and and I feel like as teachers and as educators we want to come in and fix right give me the answers give me the strategy I'm gonna apply it right now and even in hearing you say like don't condemn but don't affirm either just listen I think so many educators are looking for that, yeah, 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 good job, or, or that approval so that we can uplift our students. And, you know, kids pick up on that. We know when, they know when it's not genuine or, you know, you're just trying to come in and be a hero. I feel like this is something that our teachers, I don't know about you, Maurice, I feel like our teachers can really also learn a lot from what you just shared, Sammy. I, I think about interactions with, with parents um, and, and that ability to, um, listen, I, I, I mean, it seems some, it seems like it is something that is really, uh, so simple. Um, but is, is really, I think, and I hope that the listeners will grab something from it that is profound that without concession or condemnation, I can still listen to you. Um, and and again, that's that's incredibly um, incredibly powerful. I, I wonder uh, as we are running low on time here, um, uh, 
I'd like to be able to um, get in one more question before we kind of go through our closing ceremony uh, that, that we always do. Um, Lisette and I have previously had a, uh, an episode of the podcast come out in which we discussed the Black-Brown divide. Um, your initial story um, about um, a, a race riot taking place in a prison had uh, Black and Latino gang members uniting in order to um, fight for their lives. Um, outside of that, you know, what are some ways maybe in which you see um, the Black and Latino communities being able to unite uh, to move forward? As you're talking, a lot of emotions come up when I think about that era, you know, and I think about right now, you know, I told you guys in the beginning, I spent a lot of time doing outreach and uh, here in Racine, which is called Little Shy, it's been one of those, another one of those like little Waukegan areas. It's in the middle of Milwaukee and Chicago and it's pretty high crime, high gang stuff around here. It's a small city, 80,000 people, but it's, it carries its load of the crime um, and violence. And in that, in that outreach program, I was known as the condom man, right? Because a part of my program was handing out condoms to kids, and and I would I was good at getting them. I'd get I'd get hundreds of thousands of condoms, and I'd give them out by the handfuls to kids, you know, where everybody else is getting like two or three, and I'm like, that's that's BS, you know, like you don't want a kid dependent every day on this. Like you need to make sure they have what they need. It's a harm reduction, and there's arguments for and against it, but it's what we were doing at the time. And, um, but that handing that condom would lead to some pretty interesting conversations. And of course, I wasn't always just handing out condoms, spending time. And I remember there was this young man named Turtle. He, uh, when I later found out he was like one of the gang leaders of this neighborhood that was coming, he was just a kid himself, 15, 16. Good looking young man, black kid. And uh, I had known him maybe three or four years at this point. I, I come all the time to the neighborhood and one day he just busted out with, he says, you know, man, I don't know if you know this, Sam, but a lot of us see you as a big brother around here. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, you're the only one who keeps coming around, checking on us, you know? And I think one thing we have to do, if, and I've known this, but I think it maybe deserves being like pinpointed, is spending time with each other. We have to spend time with each other. You know, um, I don't know if you guys know anything about 64th and Honorary on the south side of Chicago, but a couple of years ago, it was listed as one of the most dangerous intersections in Chicago. And um, a white lady named Robin and her black counterpart, like I think it was like her uh, co-executive director, before they even had a building, would stand on this corner. A rich white lady, small black lady, stand on this all black neighborhood corner, which is known as one of the most violent cor corners in the, in the city, handing out water. Days one, two, three, four, ten went by. Nobody would touch them with a 10-foot pole. They kept showing up. One day, somebody takes a bottle of water. Next thing you know, they took over a boarded-up abandoned building, ripped off the, you know, no permission, ripped off the boards, started fixing up the place, putting their money got permission later, you know, they asked for forgiveness later, got the lot next to it. And next thing you know, they're running programs out of this, out of this space together with these guys. And now the whole peace house is run by people from 64th and on, right? 
like you you have to overcome your bias and your fear um and you have to spend time with people and you have to invest in each other now on the other side of that i think when it comes to civil rights we have to put aside um whatever racial divides have existed just like i did when i was 17 to to come together for the bigger issues that make your everyday issues seem very petty and maybe one day you realize that your your issues as important as they are are really all stemming from systemic racism abuse of power right it, this is not no longer for me an issue of training we've spent billions of dollars of trying to train these systems it's an issue of where you get your north star from what how does your institution get its values and where do they come from now we need to understand how you operate because you can't have this much abuse without buying at the top right because you have to know what's going on in your own systems whether it's law enforcement social justice whatever it is you now we have to stop getting involved we have to really rally around this cause right now if you ask me together because it is happening to all of us now i'm not saying that it doesn't happen to one more than the other no that's not the point but what happens to you will eventually happen to me and i and if i'm not wanting that for me i should not want that for you so we have to recognize that unless all of us whether you're white brown or black whatever it is we have to be concerned when it comes to human rights and civil rights and that's you have you unfortunately your phones and technology have made people social justice warriors from the couch you got to get off your couch you got to get from behind your pixels and join real life my proudest moment this year man my daughter marched here in town with this like black lives matter rallies that were going on here and i watched her march with those kids and i watched her get worked up and get involved and like there's a picture of her holding her fist up in the air and i'm like you know i hate that my kid has to do that but since we have to do it i'm glad she's doing it because i mean i'm still a fighter i've been a fighter my whole life man and resistance and protesting is important right now um i'm not advocating nor am i like really justifying the violence and the looting or whatever we want to call that but i understand where it comes from that it is not on it is not like like we got there by ourselves you know you're talking about communities that have just been neglected and 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 run over dude on the south side of chicago the city is dumping cement in the middle of black neighborhoods like just they don't have anywhere to put it so just, you wake up one day and all of a sudden there's a pile of highway cement on your street you know what i mean like that is just throwing you're throwing away a whole community at that point you now you're not even trying to hide the fact that you're not interested like we all have to care about that you know um and there's enough of us to make change we we influence this economy we influence school districts you know i think i'm fighting the system now from within the system my my best friends and partners are dhs fbi atf law enforcement here and there judges you know judges give me the gavel sometimes to sit behind their desk and plan like it's it's understanding that i know, i now know i can't really change the system from the outside so as a social worker i've learned to get inside the system now i'm influencing national and international policy from the inside right we have to do our part we have to get up off the couch no no act is too small too benign it all matters it all goes into the collective and we have to i think be willing to challenge you know uh the status uh the status quo of affairs right now i will vote 
I will vote. I, I participate in voting, but I want to tell you, that system is also broken because I have limited choice, limited option, and it's really false choice because I don't really get to get outside of the system that's already being played that hasn't, that's been proven not to work for us. But I'm going to do that because I recognize like it's a part of playing ball, but that system needs to be changed. Do you know what I mean? Because look, we're all concerned about our current president, but even if he gets voted out or even if he's got four more years, here's the bigger problem. The Congress and the Senate that is in place that allowed this to go on will be in place long after those leaders are gone. So we have a much bigger problem. He's the scapegoat. He's the scapegoat. He, he is saying for a lot of Americans what they've always said from that side of things. But to allow it in the White House at this level in this way is not true, is not this president. It, it is the other leadership that stood by, abdicated from their responsibility to intervene that we should be worried about. We now have to shift our focus from the so-called president to our, our now more of our you know, congressional and Senate leadership because they were complicit in this and they have much longer terms than he does. Incredibly well said, Sammy. Um, what we like to do is we like to leave our listeners with like a final thought. So what is the one final takeaway that you would like our listeners to walk away with? Well, my work has always, um, I've always worked with the most condemned populations, you know, um, in the beginning with gangs and crime, right? And so everyone likes to lock them up, throw away the keys. I'm now working with white supremacists. There's a huge part of our population is like lock them up and throw away the keys, right? Um, at 22 years old, I'm now 51, I think, right? I've been out of prison a little bit over 20 years. Um, at at 22, my second time in prison, going back through Wisconsin prison, I was interviewed by a psychologist for the Department of Corrections, right? He spent five minutes with me. Years later, um, a reporter, I think in 2002, maybe 2004, did an article on me, and she did a, a huge dive on fact-checking everything I said. So all my details of my life have been fact-checked, right? prisons, fights, anything I've just said, somebody said, I need to verify that that's true. No. So they went back. And so they went back and they pulled my Wisconsin correction uh, records. And this doctor, um, at 22, five minutes later, writes that part of his diagnosis was that I was incorrigible. This man cannot be changed, basically. There's nothing we can do for him. That little pin stroke set me down a path that I was completely oblivious to with the Department of Wisconsin Correction System because his note made them put things in front of me that should not have been there. Barriers, restrictions, right? Which here I am at 22 being sent to a maximum security prison with a six-year sentence while everybody else is serving life and you know things like that in Wisconsin. And I ended up spending like the next four or five years in the hole because of that interview. Today, um, I think the takeaway is no one is broken beyond repair. Redemption is possible, but it has to happen on both ends. People have to work towards their forgiveness process with their communities and the individuals that they've hurt. 
but the community has to be willing to reach back. And so for redemption to happen, like my redemption, I had to really work hard to prove myself, and I've been doing that ever since, but the community has been most forgiving as a whole. Not to say there aren't people who think once a criminal, always a criminal, there are, but as a whole, I don't have a level of success. I've traveled all over the world. I've, I'm in some very sensitive government, you know, places. I, you know, like I have, I have free access to the prisons here. I have more access to prisons in Wisconsin than most law enforcement does in Wisconsin, right? Like I have been forgiven, which is, says something about my community, but I have had to act in a way that is deserving of that forgiveness. And so we have to remove our own barriers. And I think the secret behind all of the messaging we had is that ego is often very self-destructive, but when you can remove ego from systems, from communications, from listening, it tends to heal uh, the wounds. It tends to bring people together. It allows the space for listening. And people only yell, not because they feel like they're not speaking loud enough or that they're, they just feel like there's too much distance between us. And so finding a way to close that distance is really what's happening. It's been my path to, to redemption is by working hard at getting my act together and facing my community, taking accountability for what I've done, being willing to have those tough conversations about my life, but also a community who was, who was interested and concerned about meaningful dialogue. That's the only way you can have reconciliation is for the communities and the perpetrators to be able to work together in dialogue to start the healing process. Tremendous, tremendous, absolutely. Uh, man, we, we, we really appreciate you taking the time today to be with us. Um, and I think that our listeners are really going to connect with this. Um, so, so again, thank you. Um, Man, I'm 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 very rarely speechless, Sammy. But uh, again, thank you for your willingness to to really expose some some deep things and, and tell your story. Um, so, uh, for Black, Brown, and Bilingüe, uh, I'm Maurice McDavid, and I'm Lisa Jacobson. Muchas gracias for tuning in.